This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer David Garibaldi. David is one of the most influential drummers of our time and is known as an innovator in funk drumming. Many of us know David as the drummer for the amazing band Tower of Power that's been at it since 1968. For many others, the introduction to David Garibaldi could have come in the form of education, whether it's one of his amazing drum books or as a clinician. David's first book, Future Sounds, was rated one of the 10 greatest drum books by Modern Drummer magazine in 1993. As a writer and performer, David has worked with such artists as Patty Austin, Natalie Cole, Mickey Hart's Planet Drum, Boz Gags, the BBC Orchestra, Gino Vanelli, Talking Drums, the Buddy Rich Orchestra, Wishful Thinking, and many more. If you want to support the podcast, you can join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash working drummer. For as little as a dollar a month, you can have access to all our educational content. In recent weeks, we've been adding quite a bit of content. That includes a video from former guests like Bruce Becker. He did a video just for us. We also have a video from former guest Brian Zach, where he goes into how to improve your ride swing patterns. And recent guest Mike Malone has five transcriptions of some amazing drummers and classic performances that he has made accessible to our Patreon members. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. You can find that link on our website at workingdrummer.net. So some super quick housekeeping. I want to send out a big thank you to Damon Hope for connecting me with David. David obviously has been someone we've been wanting to talk to since the beginning of this podcast, and uh, we're very excited to have him on the show. At the very beginning of this episode, he is using some headphones that sound a little scratchy, and uh, within the first 10 or so minutes, we switch up to another set of headphones that sounds so much better. So I won't waste any more time. This was amazing. David was so kind and wonderful and approachable. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Garibaldi. Seventy-four, I began running, and that that became like uh, my thing. So I, you know, I ran everywhere in the world. Every place Tower was, I just put on my running gear and head out. And I was an all-weather runner, so it didn't matter what the weather was. I was out there doing it. Uh, I would train for events. I did a right before uh, I had my hips replaced. I did a half marathon, and I was training. Uh, you know, during the Tower tours, I'd go out and I'd do my 
you know, my training runs and all that stuff. And it was really, it was fun. You know, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but you know, fitness is, I think so important, man, you know, cause whatever you, you don't do when you're younger, when you get older, it's going to completely catch up with you. Oh and so you got to have good fitness habits. You have to have good, you know, diet and all of that stuff. Um, you know, uh, diet is really important diet and exercise. You do those things, you know, keeping your mind sharp. Um, you know, uh, I practiced a lot. So uh, drumming fitness and physical fitness to me are two different things. Uh, you know, just because you can do a hundred pushups doesn't mean you're going to, it's going to make your drumming better, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, is there anything that you avoid doing so that it doesn't ad affect your drumming adversely? You mean, yeah, not exercising. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, you don't exercise and then you start to, you know, I notice it when I like we just came back from we were in Europe for a month. And it was pretty intense. We did a lot of gigs and it was kind of all over the place, you know, tour bus and all this stuff, sleeping on the bus some nights. And, uh, you know, we always have a hotel, but still there was the overnight travel and all that. And that, you know that wears on you, man. That's, that's pretty tough stuff. And so you, you have to, you know, uh, take care of, you know, get good sleep if you can and that kind of thing. And so my fitness, uh, I had to some days, some days I wasn't able to do anything, you know? Um, and I noticed it when I got home, man, I, you know, so I immediately dove back into things and, you know, my usual routine of exercise every day and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know? So I do a lot of different things. I, at, at this point in my life, you know, I, still do strength training, but not the crazy stuff that I used to do. Um, I use strength training, yoga, uh, Pilates once a week. Um, lots of walking. I walk every day. Uh, I cycle, um, you know, those kind of things, you know, so I just keep it going. Yeah. I, I love that. It's, it's always been in my DNA to do that as well. I want to go to, um, early recordings. I, I'm, I'm so fascinated with the way people were performing and recording before clicks were a normal <laughs> thing, before digital recording and editing was easier. This is when I first started recording, it was the two inch tape. I've got friends I work with, they're like, right, man, you are old. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, when I listen to these recordings, especially in the seventies and, and I'm with my son and I'm going, listen to this performance. No, uh, no editing or, or editing was very difficult. Not the way it is today. Uh, there was no click track uh, you could kind of hear, but man, the magic and the performance. I wonder if you could speak to this as, as far as, those early Tower Power records or what the experience was like when recording. Um, just kind of unpack some of that if possible. Well, we, we sort of remained like a technology, you know, technology free zone, you know, for many, many years. Uh, a lot of our recordings were done without, without click. Uh, a lot of the recordings were a mix of, you know, as later things later on, you know, we used click, you know, on certain songs, if it worked, if it didn't work, we'd turn the thing off and just play. And um, so now we are doing a lot of digital recording. Uh, we're doing like, you know, we'll do drum tracks and then everybody builds everything over, you know, on that. Uh, it's, it's much different now. You know, we even do sections of songs now 
you know, I do, I, you know, record with Joe Vanelli and he's fabulous to work with. Uh, you know, we don't have the luxury of rehearsing with Tower of Power. You know, we always would in the early years, we would write songs, learn the songs and then perform the songs for six months to sometimes a year before we would record. Yeah. So that the songs were, um, had our personality in them. You know, they were, we had arrangement things worked out and, you know, parts were solidified and all of that stuff. You know, well, we don't do that anymore because we don't, everybody lives in different places. And so our rehearsal thing is much different. We rehearse on the road now, you know, and sound checks our rehearsals. And so it was much, much different, you know, and in the older days, we were rehearse every day. Jeez. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And that's no bullshit. You know, Tower is a, a a very blue collar kind of a vibe. You know, we're like, a, we call ourselves a garage band that can read music. And so <laughs> we would rehearse every single day Man. without fail. We had our rehearsal space in Berkeley. <clears throat> we grew out of that place and we moved over to SIR Studio Instrument Rentals in San Francisco. We were there for many years. We kept all our gear there, and that was kind of ground zero for a lot of the music that was being made in the Bay Area. And um, we were just in there every day. We'd go out and we'd tour. And the rule was, if everybody was not too tired, we would be in the rehearsal studio at 11 a.m. the next day. That's how we did it. We'd wow. come home from a trip, and we'd just hit hit the rehearsal place, always working on the music. And it's still like that, just kind of a different in a different way. It's very fluid, you know. So with the recordings, um, if a song felt good with a click, we would use it. If it didn't feel good like that, we wouldn't use it. Even even in the beginning. Oh yeah, we're using a click. Okay. Well, no, and no, I no no clicks until when was the first time we used a click? Uh, that was the back on the streets recording. We did with uh, um, McKinley Jackson and who else? Uh, Richard, I can't remember his name now. But uh, that was our first time using recording to clicks. These guys wanted to use clicks, so we did clicks. Yeah, but it was uh, it was a big learning curve to do that because we're used to playing live in the studio, you know, live rhythm section, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and it was very different. It took a while to get used to it. Okay. Okay. Any uh, introduction of, of a click live that you guys have ever entertained? No, no. Yeah. Okay. No. We tried it once. We had a loop that we wanted to play with. Uh-huh. And we did it for a while. And I think on there was one gig. We had like a, I don't know, it was like a Lin 9000 or some kind of thing. We had some kind of thing going with a drum loop. And I would play along with it. But then it screwed up on one gig and we're gone. Nope. Nope. That's <laughs> the end of that. We put it in the case and never used it again. Yeah. 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 I hear you. And, and, and that's something we talk about, you know, because it's, it's not uncommon to use a click live in very different, in different scenarios. Yeah. But as we've become really adept to the way technologies influenced our performances live and in the studio i feel like there's this circle 
and we're, we're, we're coming back to wanting to make sure that we're not losing that musicality, that feel, that connection. And it's, it's funny to say, but people say, you know, get comfortable working with a metronome, working with a click on all these things. And we're like, yeah, 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 we do that. We do that. And we're there now coming full circle. Can you play without the click? Can you groove without the click? Can you lock in with a time feel of a bass player that you're not used to playing with? And all these different scenarios. And so when I hear some of these early recordings and I hear some of these bands that I know didn't use a click in the studio, but were going off their musical instincts, it's very inspiring. Well, that's that's the way we did it. You know, if you listen to the recording of Squid Cakes on the Back to Oakland album, yeah, you know, that was... That was that was live, you know. Um, the the uh, live and in living color, mm-hmm. which was that knock yourself out version, which is like a half hour or some kind of crazy thing, you know. That was just blowing, man. That's and we were, that's how we did it all the time, you know. It's, we still are like that, you know. So our music is, you know, it's still pretty much the same the way that we approach it, you know, it's kind of like a, like a jam band, garage band. They can read music and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know how to explain it. You know, we don't use any technology on the gigs or anything like that. We just play live and it, it goes where it goes, you know, and that's our vibe. I think that's, that's what I've discovered in the almost nine years we've been doing this podcast is that when it comes to these musical just these things that are happening musically most people don't have a solid answer for it they're just like I, I can't i can't tell you like that's just the way we do it it's just the way it's happened and so uh, which is brilliant which i love it's just it's amazing we just need to keep listening and draw inspiration we're a live band you know we're yeah. a live band that's what we do you know yeah yeah and and in the studio in the studio recordings it sounds like it my favorite bands are those bands that are like, how is this going to come across live? How is this, you know, how do we make this arrangement and the dynamic changes and build the energy so that when we take this song from the studio to the stage, it translates, you know, and I, I hear that with you guys, especially when it comes to dynamics and like building that tension, you know, over solos and shout courses and different things like that. It's like, oh my gosh, there's that thing. Um, I'm trying to think who I talked to plays played with Pat Metheny and it's like that whole thing that whole use of dynamics that can sometimes be a factor that gets lost in modern music well I approach our music like playing in a big band yeah you know, I love big band music you know uh, Count Basie and Woody Herman and all that stuff and all the the great European, you know, radio orchestras, you know, VDR and, and uh, the Danish radio orchestra, Umel in Finland, all that, you know. So yeah. we're kind of like, we're kind of like that. We love all that kind of music. And so it influences, you know, what we do. Our basic thing is like a funk band, you know, R&B funk band. But there's a lot of things that, that in our music that that comes from. You know, a lot of influences and big band is one of them, a big, a big influence, you know. So that's the way I approach it. We're playing kind of funky beats, but, you know, learning how to play with the ensemble, just like in a big band. Yeah. Yeah. 
when you when you were first starting, uh, was your style and approach encouraged when you first started with the band by Emilio and and, and oh, other yeah. band members? Yeah, I mean, it, that's kind of the beauty of Tower. That's why I stay with it, you know, for so long is because nobody says no, you know, it's always yes, you know, let's <laughs> try it, you know, like Emilio was like, um, we call him Mimi, you know, Mimi, the leader, Mimi, he's like, he loves drums and he loves, you know, creating. So with him, when I joined the band, it was kind of an opportunity for him to kind of like, you know, whatever he wanted, I could do it. And so we just kind of went that way. And then when I started experimenting with turning beats around and all of that, I think the first thing I did was, uh, we had a lot of music that were the, you know, traditional, you know, two and four snare, that kind of stuff. And so just to see what would happen, I started trying those songs, playing the snare drum on one and three, just reversing, you know, the beat. Right. And man, that created lots of problems with the guys. They hated it. And so I would suggest, well, why don't you just count? <laughs> And that created a lot of, that was like an inmate uprising, man. You know, so Mimi, he just made everybody count. He's the supreme leader. He says, no, we're going to count. And so as soon as he did that and everybody started counting and everybody knew where they were, we owned our groove. And I could, at that point, we just started taking it in all kinds of different directions. You know, I loved Latin music. I was wanted to have kind of that groove of the latin music but not two and four you know mm -hmm. but kind of bring that into tower world you know so that was like soul vaccination uh oakland stroke you know uh, on a serious side yeah that kind of those kind of things where it's like beats crazy beats and you build songs around the crazy beats I was uh, playing some Tower Power in the car yesterday when my, when my wife and I were driving around. I said, does this groove sound familiar to you, Soul Vaccination? She's like, maybe. I said, because I've been practicing it for 23 years. Uh, uh. <laughs> it's probably, you might hear it coming out of the basement somewhere. She's like, okay, maybe so. She's probably tuned out, you know, after all this time. But, um, well, I, I want to bring up something because... A style, I feel like you are the poster child for somebody that has created a sound and a style and an approach that is, it is, it is your fingerprint. And because of the support of the band and your interest in creating an identifiable sound, that just the stars have aligned that, mm -hmm. that made you the drummer you are. And um, I want to talk about. A couple different things. One, and this is a quote from you talking about the books like Future Sounds and some other books you've put out. All, and this is from you. All I did was take what I liked from about six or seven of my favorite drummers and then made one drummer out of all that. My goal was to have my own sound and personality like they did. And yep. Chad Wackerman was, uh, there was an interview with Chad and he talked about a couple things that I wanted to bring to the table with you. He said, when you're coming up and you're learning, you're learning from all your influences. 
and then somebody calls you for a gig and said, hey, listen, we want Steve Gadd, but we can't get Steve Gadd, so we've hired you, and we want you to do your best Steve Gadd impression. And so that's what you get hired for. And then as you develop your sound and your style and your personality, somebody says, I dig your sound. We want you on this gig, on this session. We want your sound. So my question to you is how would you go about advising someone who wants to make their identifiable sound and approach a big part of their career the way you did and get hired because of it? Mm. You know, uh, it's just, my situation is different. Uh, I don't think you can use me as a, as an example, you know, cause I have tower power, which is like kind of my laboratory for, you know, building my drumming, everything that I've learned about drumming, I learned in, with this band and, you know, I tried different things all the time. The things that, that don't work, I throw them out or recycle them in, you know, in another form, uh, later on, you know, that's happened many, many times, you know? So I, when I, I lived in Los Angeles for 12 years, I, it, that's a free, that's freelance world there. And, you know, just like, like Nashville and a lot of other places. Yeah. I, I never liked it because I liked being in bands. Uh, you know, that was kind of the thing. I came up being in a band. I grew up in that environment. I liked that. I liked the looking across the stage and seeing guys that I've worked with for years and we know each other, you know, intimately and, you know, understand each other musically and there's nothing about them I would change. You know, I love that. You know, when I lived in Los Angeles, there was a lot of, you know, people, you know, criticizing other players and why don't you play like this? And, you know, pressure for people to play in other ways that weren't themselves. And I felt that that was, that was unrealistic for me. You know, I want to be myself. That's what I think, um, you know, everyone admires is people who are themselves. Those are the people that we always watch are the ones that are themselves. And history shows that. You look at the great drummers throughout history, the ones that we still listen to, you know, um, you know, Tony Williams, Elvin Jones, you know, Max Roach. We're still listening to those people. Clyde Stubblefield, you know, uh, you know, Jabo, those guys at James Brown. We're still listening to that stuff. Zig with the meters because they're themselves. Right. And that's the example right there. And so to me, what we do is art, no more, no less. It, this is not, I, I know there's business to it, but this is art to me. And you can say whatever you want. It's your art. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do is. So I listened to, you know, uh, Tony Williams, the, the great Tony, you know, with all the, his personality and all of that stuff, man. And I listened to that. I'm going, I want to have that in, you know, that vibe in my playing. I want to have people listen to me and know that it's me. To me, that was more important than, than anything, you know, and still is really, you know, I want to be myself. I don't want to be someone else. I've never been hired to be someone else. I've never even been hired by other people to be me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you worked with Patty Austin, Natalie Cole, Boz Gags, Gino yeah. Vanelli. How did you approach those situations? I played their music. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're going to go into a gig, you're going to, you know, do your very best to play their music. Sometimes it doesn't work, you know. Um, sometimes they just don't like your approach to the music. You know, I've had that happen, you know. 
Um, So you you just have to do your very, very best. The music always tells you what to play. Um, When I lived in L.A., there was uh, the guys that were really, really terrific studio players. They had um, the ability to be chameleons. They could sound like, no, you know, just like very generic. They could do that and were very adept at it. And I knew all these guys and I knew how they played. I knew they all had a personality in their play because I'd hear them live. I'd go out here in the clubs and jam sessions and stuff. But when they're working, they had this really uncanny sort of ability to throw all that away and be as generic as possible and play the music in the most generic, you know, no nonsense kind of a way. And not everyone can do that. That's a skill in itself, you know, just like reading, you know, Mm -hmm. reading music was in LA. I I was there for 12 years and about 95% of all the gigs that I did were reading. You had to be able to read. And the guys in the studios were really, really the great ones. They had this ability to read music, read a chart for the first time and make it sound like they had rehearsed it. They knew how to interpret music and do it very, very quickly, no matter what the style was. And that in itself, man, was unbelievable skill. I learned how to do that when I was there. I mean, by the time I left L.A., I could do that. I could read music and make it sound like I rehearsed. But man, that's a very unique skill. I love that kind of stuff. But still, I'm in a funk band, (laughs) you know, and this is what I do. I love it, you know. Um, So anyway, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Well, and and it's just interesting because uh, as we've talked to so many different drummers over the years and, and everyone's story is unique, everyone's journey is unique. uh, And, and, we all have different goals uh, and just trying to navigate that and figure out, do I insert myself in this scenario? When do I just kind of stay within the lines, uh, play what's on the record? How do I insert my personality in small ways, in great ways and different things like that? And, but stay, but also stay busy well, your work environment, you know, your work environment tells you what kind of drummer you have to be. If you're a freelance player, then you have to wear a lot of different hats. You have to learn to please people. You have to be able to, you know, adjust on the fly. There's a lot of things that you have to do. And that's a skill in itself. You know, uh, the guys that are really, really good at it, they got that chameleon thing, man. They can, they have their own vibe, but they can do a lot of other things, you know. One yeah. of the great ones to me is Greg Bissonette. I've known Greg for many, many years. What a fabulous player in person, man. This guy can play any kind of music and make it sound like it's it's right, like he's done it his whole life. And, you know, he, he studies other drummers. He knows what they do. He can quote other drummers. Um, yeah. But... You know, that's his thing, man. You know, he has a a way that he plays. He's he's an excellent reader, excellent musician, you know. Um, when it, the time comes for him to play the way that he wants to play, he does it. But he always 
plays for the situation. I just heard him with Ringo's band. And it was so cool, man. That's it awesome. It just was the greatest, you know. Yeah. And here, this is Greg Bissonette, man. The guy is just a all around. He's the voice of Winnie the Pooh. I know. <laughs> about that. You know, he's got that going on, you know. Yeah, I know. But it's just, and, and, and what a sweetheart. Um, he's a total, total great, great guy, man. Mm-hmm. Love him. For sure. I would almost say that like his ability to adapt is his personality. It's, it's a, it's an identifiable part of who Greg is, is his mm-hmm. ability to adapt yeah. as he's made an amazing career out of it. Uh, he's just one all around great drummer and, and, and yeah. So great to have him in the community over these many decades here. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Yeah. A uh, question from Damon uh, looking back on your development over time, is there anything you may have tried differently knowing what you know now, like different configurations of your drum set, hand techniques, even seat height that would have been useful to express your ideas or better prevent you from injuries if you had any? I never thought about it like that. Um, as far as, you know, drumming injuries, I've never had any. Uh I've had other injuries. I've had sports injuries. I've crashed my bike a few times. There's that, you know. Um, But I've never had any injuries from playing the drums because I always focused on, you know, having good technique. I study, uh, you know, uh, I've studied hand technique. I love it. I think it's one of the coolest things ever, you know, just learning how to relax and developing better skills with your hands and refining all of those things, you know, fine-tuning all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's uh I don't look back on my playing and and think maybe I should do this differently. I mean, for me, this is like a journey, you know, how I used to play, you know, back in the early part of the of my music career. I don't like playing that way anymore. Just my interests have changed and kind of how I want to do things. My approaches are different. Were you always thinking about technique? Were you always the student you are now that you like were you the student you are now then in other words when you were coming up and 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 playing i know you 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 say you play differently now than you did then yeah you don't refer to it as i play better than i did then. you just say i play differently so are you implying that no i had good technique when i was younger and my drums were set up differently i just approach it differently is that what you're saying yeah and so I kind of, uh, you know, I've had some, some, you know, physical things happen, you know, some traumatic things happen to me physically. And so I've, you know, just kind of learned to adjust to those things, you know, um, work around. Yeah. You know? So a couple of things that, have, you know, one thing in particular that happened to me was that accident and I had a, a traumatic brain injury and it really um it really changed a lot of things for me you know and so i've had to readjust my playing i've had to you know reinvent a lot of the my parts and kind of find another way to do things because the way that i was doing them before i can't do it anymore it's just not there you know um as a result of that accident and so i've just learned to you know um adjust and accept the changes and work on new things. 
Well, and, and this is a good transition. Uh, I, I'm curious to know uh, if you could talk about uh, this accident that happened in 2017. Uh, I think we all remember it, uh, but uh, some of the details. Uh, but if you want to briefly kind of catch us up to speed with what happened, because I would love to talk about what you've been doing to adjust your playing and recover and play the way you're playing now uh, through the help of Bruce Becker. We've Again, like I said, we had him as a guest recently. I've had the pleasure of taking a couple lessons from him, and I've been working through some repetitive stress injuries, and he's been helping me with that, and I'm real feel great about the results and it's it's keeping me in the game so uh back in 2017 i know you guys were doing a run of shows in san francisco what is it like six shows two shows a day and it was like uh it was uh yoshi's in oakland downtown oakland mm -hmm. and uh yoshi's was a you know a popular music venue here i mean everybody plays there i mean it's a you know cool place uh so we were doing a, a residency there. We had been doing that for several years and it was pretty popular. We do it, you know, after the start of the year it was always kind of how we would begin our, our touring year. And this particular year was six nights, two shows a night. So we, you know, you go in there and you're blowing. And so great crowds sold out every night, bands playing killer. And so the very last night, uh, Mark and I, who's, you know, bass player, took Rocco's place. Uh, well, let's have dinner. So we met for dinner and um, we come out of the hotel where the restaurant was. And we see that there's a train going going by because on the main street, the Embarcadero, the main street there, it's the port of Oakland. And so there's trains and all this stuff that goes on there, you know, this commerce and everything. It's right there in an area where there's clubs and restaurants and everything else. So. We decided, okay, let's walk down the street to the crosswalk and wait for the train to pass. And that crosswalk will take us right to the backstage door of the club, you know, the venue. So that's what we did. We're waiting for the train to pass. We're talking, you know, have our usual conversation about all kinds of different stuff. People are gathering behind us to wait to cross the street. So the train goes by, you hear ding, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, so everybody starts to move out into the crosswalk. The train was passing. Yeah. And so there was, there's three tracks there. So we get out onto the, one of the other tracks. We're just literally standing on top of the track and somebody yells behind us, yells train and people are scattering behind us. And Mark and I, we looked to our left and out of the shadows, another train was coming in the opposite direction. And you couldn't tell that it was there because of the noise of the one that going the other way. And so we looked at each other and we tried to get out of the way. Um, and we both got hit. Oh my gosh. And so, uh, you know, I woke up on the street and stuff was pretty different. You know, uh, my jaw was broken. My eye here on this side was completely broken. You know, I had a concussion you know, uh, broken ribs, uh, what else? I mean, there was all kind of stuff going on. Mark was in a coma for eight weeks. I mean, he was, he, he had worse injuries than I did, you know? Um, so 
you get your bell rung like that and um it changes things so you know the there was a friend of mine who uh dr russ hands mm-hmm. also a drummer and he came to the show that night and he's he was a student of mine you know he'd come to my house for lessons over the years and uh a great great guy and so he was there and he had come to the show and he saw what happened and he went out and saw that it was us and he was trying to help and all this and um when i was in the hospital you know he, get, he comes to the hospital with with us and he says to me you know you're gonna be okay you know because after the tests and everything that showed that there was no neurological damage or anything he says you're gonna be okay you're gonna be you know you're gonna be back to work and i think bro <laughs> No, I don't see how that was possible. I could, I couldn't even walk, you know. And he says, "You're going to be okay." Yeah. And so this was in January. So uh, by October, I went back to work, you know, which was amazing. But when I got back there, I couldn't remember stuff. I couldn't remember the arrangements. Uh, Parts that I played didn't work anymore. I couldn't get the coordination part to work. Uh, there was a disconnect between some of my limbs lining everything up, which I never had any of those problems, you know? Um, so all the work that I had done to achieve all of that, it was kind of out the window. I had to rebuild things. It was very, very frustrating. So one of the, Oh, see, I guess when I first went to see the band after I was, you know, getting ready to come back. I, I went out to see the band play and Herman Matthews was playing drums. Right. And so I'm listening to the band and I'm going, we did that. It really was a strange kind of a feeling, you know, uh, listening to the, to them play. It was like, I'd never heard it before in a way. Yeah. I'm going, man. So they asked me to sit in. Okay. So I sat in, I played, played a song. I'm going, I don't know if I remember this, but that I got through it. It just was all there, but I couldn't recall it. So Mimi says to me, well, we're coming back in a couple of weeks. Come and play some more tunes. So I picked a couple of tunes to play and I couldn't remember the arrangements. I had to look at YouTube and all this other stuff to, you know, make charts and everything. I'm going, man, this is so weird. And so when it came time to do that gig, I was there, I was ready to play, but I couldn't remember anything. <laughs> Even all I'd, I'd tried to remind myself of it, and rehearse it and all that other stuff. So I said a little prayer before I went out and I played and it was all there. Okay. I was stunned. So then I come back to the band and I realized that, okay, there's some stuff missing here. And we, at that point, we're, we're getting ready to do our 50th anniversary show in Oakland, here in Oakland. And, and so we're, we were going to rehearse. We, we picked music to play. We had all these meetings. We picked a, a bunch of songs and we we're rehearsing in Sacramento and Mimi's calling out tunes and I have all the charts right in front of me. He's calling out the tunes and in order that he wants to work on them. And I couldn't put them in the order that he was saying. Wow. I just couldn't, or I couldn't do it. Wow. And I was stunned. I'm going, man, this is so weird. And it was really upsetting to me. So I told a couple of guys, you know, Mark and Roger, who are my really close pals in the band, you know, I says, guys, man, this is really messing me up. I can't remember this stuff. You know, it's really bugging me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And they said, well, you know, don't worry about it. 
Mm. You're, you're cool. We're with you, man. So I realized, and you know, of course, Mimi and the guys, they want me there. I wanted to be there. I didn't have anybody looking over my shoulder telling me, you know, you're not doing it right. They just let me do my thing. So that's when I started kind of really putting everything back together. You know, I kept a book of charts with me in my backpack that I would bring out to remind myself. And I'm assuming have you, had, you hadn't used charts before. Not on the gigs. No, never, man. Right, right. You know? And so we're learning these, this music for the 50th anniversary show. And I'm trying to remember everything, you know, try to memorize. And I'm having really struggling to do that. And it's all stuff that I knew already, but I just couldn't remember it. And so I brought these charts with me and we would rehearse the, the new material that we were going to do for the show. We would rehearse it every day. And then when it got ready, we would put it in the live show and perform it so that by the time we were ready for the 50th anniversary shows, which are going to be videoed and all that, we would be ready. Yeah. And so it was really a struggle, but I just said, okay, I'm doing this. Yeah. And I pushed myself to do it. By the time we got down to doing the shows, um, I had everything memorized, but one. And I think I kept the, all those charts in my backpack as a little, you know, kind of reminder for, you know, just in case, you know, for a long time after that, you know, yeah. but uh, my advice to people is if they have things happen to them, you know, that are traumatic, you can get through it, man. You just have to push yourself and realize that you can do this. Yeah. And it's amazing what people come back from, you know, of course. You yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to have that community around you and the support is what a, I love that. It's just amazing. Oh, that's a bunch of good, you know, a bunch of great guys in the band, you know, they, if I'm getting too serious, they would come up to me and say a bunch of stupid shit to me and make me laugh. And then now you're kind of like, you know, <laughs> snap me out of myself, you know, and get back to enjoying life, you know? Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's amazing. Okay. Do you have any stories about, uh, working with Bruce and, and what led you to him? Bruce, I was um, investigating like foot technique. I was having some issues with, with, with foot technique. And I thought, you know, I don't know how I, I found Bruce, but he had a reputation as a great teacher. And so I went to see him. I went to LA. I went, went to, to see him. This was a, before I had any accidents or anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very, very helpful what he did, you know, the, the lesson that I had with him. And so when I was rehabbing from, you know, starting to come back from the accident, I realized, man, I better, you know, kind of get my, my chops back in order. And so, you know, taking lessons has always been very helpful. So, um, you know, I asked Bruce, you know, can I, can you help me rebuild my, technique and that kind of stuff, you know? And so that was kind of a rehab thing. I was really a crappy student for him, you know, cause I couldn't concentrate and I would struggle with the lessons, simple things, you know, that I never used to struggle with, uh, you know, focus and all that. And he was so cool. You know, he just yeah. he was very patient and I, I learned a lot from him, but I just was a crappy student because I couldn't in between the lessons, I couldn't get it together enough to really have good performances and 
in the lessons like I normally would, like I have with other teachers, you know, had with in the past with other teachers. Sure. But he was so great, you know, and very patient and you know, he's an excellent teacher. I mean, he really knows his stuff, man. He's he's fabulous, you know. Very in the in the minutiae of things. He's very tuned in. Yeah. To, and and he's straightforward and yet patient at the same time. And did he I, have you? Did he? Did you uh, have him demonstrate his four-stroke rough uh, paradiddles? No, I don't. I don't believe so. I'll have to. Serious. <laughs> it's like rudimental porn, man. It's like serious. <laughs> so great, you know. Rudimental porn. That is the best. I, that, that, that is great. I'm due for another lesson. Uh, it's it's been a wonderful couple months for me as far as work is concerned. So, ironically, I've been busy playing and doing gigs that I haven't had a chance to work on the things that he's given me. And you probably know full well that sometimes you have a lesson with a teacher or a couple that the concepts that are given to you will last you for the rest of your life to work on. Correct, and through the journey of this podcast, my brain has been recalibrated to believe that having a teacher or taking lessons is something that should always be on your radar, no matter where you are in life, no matter where you are in your career. I think a lot of us have this mindset that, oh, you take lessons when you're a kid, maybe you go to school for music after high school, and then you're done. And that's just not the way it happens. And uh, a guest we had on years ago talked about Tiger Woods, one of the best golfers in the planet, and he has a coach. And yeah. so if Tiger Woods can have a coach, you can have a teacher or you can take lessons. And in digging deep into your journey, it just comes up over and over the people that you've worked with, obviously, not only Bruce, but Murray Spivak and... Uh, all these other people, uh, Chandler Henderson early on, uh, Jim Campana. Yeah, Mr. Campana. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, uh, but there's just a, bu there's a bunch of Chuck Brown, Richard Wilson. Uh, it, it, it was, a, it was very encouraging. Again, just reinforces this idea that, man, having a teacher, having a mentor, no matter who you are, no matter who you think you are, <laughs> yeah. so important. I have a couple of people that uh, that I work with now, you know, uh, one guy, um, I call him Yoda. And so whenever I need perspective on stuff, you know, and he's just a really, really great friend of mine, but he has a very, very broad perspective on things and very um, clear uh, observations. Mm -hmm. and um, very, very helpful, you know. So whenever I'm thinking about something or, you know, puzzled about something, I'll I'll text him or we'll talk. And, you know, he goes Yoda on me all the time. It's just so amazingly great, you know. And then I started recently working with uh, Enrique de Almeida. Okay. Enrique is like, uh, was at Berkeley for many, many years, a fabulous, fabulous player. And he has a, he has a thing that he does now. He lives in Denver called drum set coach. And he's uh, a wonderful teacher, man. I'm, and again, I'm a shitty student right now. 
because I can't concentrate on things like I used to be able to do, but I need that to help me have some something to shoot toward. Yep. And so, you know, I think you have to have go-to people that you're always work with that you can learn things from, mm-hmm. or at least can point you into um, a direction. You know, really great teachers always will ask you questions. They don't tell you what to do. They ask you questions. And then you have to answer those questions. And the answer is within. Of course. Yeah. Of course. When I was uh, did my very first book, Future Sounds, I had written this book that was everything I thought about drumming. And I thought. I want to get, I'd like to get this out there. I wanted to put a book out for some reason. That was just something that I always thought was really cool. I want to write a book. So I started taking it around and I really wasn't, didn't know much about music publishing. And I wasn't liking what I was hearing because I didn't really understand how it all worked. But I knew about this guy, Sandy Feldstein, who was, I, I saw his name on books and he was kind of like a respected guy in the music publishing world. So I was living in Los Angeles. I called Alfred Publishing and said, I'd like to speak with Sandy. He answered. He, he responded. And they put me right onto his, his, his office phone. We talked. He invited me to come in. He knew all about Tower of Power and all this stuff. The guy was really something, man. He was like an a, a editor, a drum editor, senior editor at uh, Alfred Publishing in L.A., uh, a re- kind of like a, a college professor. He taught at Potsdam University wrote books himself. Um, So I took the manuscript to him and he took it home and he said he graded it like a college paper. He looked at it. So he came back to me and he said, you know, I love your book, man. It's really, really great. But, and of course, here comes the but. He says, you don't have a subject. I said, what? What do you mean? It's it's about drums. He said, (laughs) no, you got to have a subject, man. And soon as you have a subject, then... Uh, you save the rest for something else, but you have to have a subject. And so I, he said, go home, think about it, come back and tell me what your subject is going to be. So I went home a couple of weeks. I racked my brain. I couldn't figure it out. And then all of a sudden, one day it just dawned me, you know, the thing I like about what I do is the beats. That's the thing that turns me on the most. I had snare drum and bass drum. So I went back to him and I said, I got my subject. I had snare drum and bass drum. He held out his hand, shook my hand. He said, let's go to work. So he knew what it should be, but he wanted me to figure it out. And in all the work that I did with him, we did videos, we did all kinds of other stuff. He never once told me what to do. Never. He would always ask me questions and make me think about what the next step was. He would never tell me what the next step was, even though he knew what it was. He wanted me to know. And wanted me to figure it out. And I thought, and that is just, that's brilliant, you know, that somebody that makes you think. And I think that's what a mentor does, is they don't tell you what to do. They make you think about what to do. They ask the questions. And then you search within yourself and answer the question. Brilliant. I love that. Uh, brilliant. And, 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 and that book has been... Uh... 
an amazing part of my development too. I, I can't thank you enough for Future Sounds, and I, it's been it's been a, a huge hit in the in the drumming community, but just in in pushing the needle. So, uh, on behalf of everyone, I thank you for that. But uh, and I also love this story, and as hopefully uh, as a parent, I find myself struggling with how to advise my young these young men into the next journey of their life and i'm going to use that you know for sure you just help people get where they want to go yeah even if it's your kids you just help them get where they want to go right you know? quiz yeah. them ask them what do you want to do you know my son loved basketball he's a like basketball freak and so he uh he's 18 now when he was 11, I took him to see the Harlem Clowns or the Harlem Globetrotters, one of those things, and he just freaked out. He loved it. And after we were getting in the car ready to come home, he says, Papa, how do you be successful? This is my kid. He's 11 years old. He's asking me this. How do you be successful? <laughs> and I was like stunned. Here, I'm, you know, I got this little 11-year-old dude, and he's asking me about that. So we just started talking about it and it was something that we talked about still talk about you know he watches me he sees what i do um he's very goal oriented you know um he knows what he wants now he's in college he's you know studying business and all this other stuff you know and he's just a really really sharp young dude you know congratulations uh, man but I don't tell them what to do. Mm -mm. I've never told them what to do. Mm -hmm. I show them by example. I ask them questions, mm -hmm. let them talk, make them think, and he figures it out. And I think that's what the student teacher thing is all about. The teachers that I loved that I've learned the most from never told me what to do. They gave me ideas. And, th and think about the common personality amongst musicians, let alone drummers. We're all pretty stubborn and uh, feel like we know what's best for ourselves. So to get a student or somebody to think for themselves and to ask themselves questions seems like the perfect strategy for progress and change as opposed to telling somebody what to do. Because I you got to like, find your way. You know, yeah, you, have, yeah, you yeah. have to have to find your, you know, your path. What works for you, you know, right, right, so right. that you can learn how to create, make great music. You know, doing what you do. Uh, you're not going to bring a sheet of exercises to the gig. You know, you bring concept to the gig. You're building concept. You know, you're learning how to create. You know, yeah. those. I don't know if you're familiar with the stick people. You know that. A little bit. I, I, I came across it when I was looking at what you were doing. It's a really cool thing. And, you know, those guys, Michael Shreve, Mike Clark, Lenny White, Gregory Rico, we've known each other since the early days, you know, here in the Bay Area. And those guys, to me, they are, they sort of define for me being yourself mm -hmm. because they're really, really unique players, unique people. Um, one thing about, those guys that was uh, an attitude that was very prevalent here in the Bay area was, you know, nobody copied anybody. We didn't want to copy people, even though that's 
how you learn initially, you never wanted to copy somebody ever. You didn't want to have somebody come up to you and say, you sound like never. That was bad, bad news, man. (laughs) You know, so with them, it was, we'd go to each other's gigs and we'd hang out and all this other stuff, but we never once tried to be them. We were always ourselves. And that was, that was the vibe. There's some really, really great, great musicians and great drummers here in the Bay area. One guy, man, he passed away now, uh, Gaylord Birch, Gaylord, man, legendary Bay area guy, but he didn't sound like anybody. He sounded like himself because that was, I think that's what, what the vibe was, you know, that using your imagination to build what you want to be, you know, there wasn't YouTube. There wasn't a lot of video to look at. You know, mm-hmm. I think that the, 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 the downside of all the, the video is that you have a lot of copycat people. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so I think you have to use your imagination about what it is that you want to become as a player, you know, put the video and stuff away, you know, maybe turn the video off and just listen, listen to the video. Don't watch it. What are they doing? Because that was the thing with records, you know, at at the time when I was coming up, learning was very regional. It was localized, you know, it was all your buds, man, your your pals, you know, you're exchanging ideas. You listen to records. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? When did you see this? Did you hear this? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, when you're listening, you have to use your imagination. What is it that this drummer is doing? You know, what is it that, you know, how is he playing his hi-hat? How is he playing his ride cymbal? You know, the, how he hits his drums, how is he doing that? And then you have to use your imagination to replicate that rather than a visual representation. You are creating a mental representation of what's happening. And that's, to me, that's how you build yourself is use your imagination. Don Perry talks about that in in the sense that sometimes when you're interpreting what you're hearing, there something gets lost in translation, and yet that's the beauty of it, because by the time you sit down to play what you think the guy is playing, it becomes yours. There it is, man. And Don's a great player and, you know, a cool guy. So that's ex- he's old school. That's old school thinking, man. That's exactly that's exactly correct. When I I fell in love with Bernard Purdy's drumming and Tower, we played with Aretha Franklin at the CBS Records Convention in L.A. This was like really early on. Um, That was my first time seeing Purdy play, Mm -hmm. watching him play. And I'd been listening to him on the recordings. And so I was trying to figure out what it is that he was doing. I would listen. I would go through a recording. I would listen to the hi-hat. See if I can figure that out. Then I go through and I listen to study this. What's what's the snare drum doing? Ghost notes, accents, all that stuff. Then I listen to his bass drum. I kind of go through it all at one component at a time and try to build a concept based on what I was hearing. So I was doing that. And then when I heard him play, it saw him play, it was completely different. But in all of that, I had developed a concept for myself and I figured wow, this is cool. I have something here. And I just kept building on that. Yes. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. And and there is so much access to information and videos right now that we're kind of going through this 
this moment in time where is it good? Is it bad? How is it moving the needle? Uh, how is it uh, keeping us from creating art? Well, it's like Mark Twain says, don't let school get in the way of your education. <laughs> He's full of good things, man. That's a good one, man. It is a, it is a really good one. Uh Speaking of school, the last thing I want to ask you about is the the last book you put out, DG's Notebook. Yes, sir. When we were we were talking about, uh, I had a chance to meet with uh, Damon Hope. He was visiting Nashville, and we met for cigars and hung out, and it was just a great hang. And uh, he was talking about taking lessons from you and this massive notebook of ideas that you've been keeping and logging and and all this stuff, and how now it's accessible and we have I, i'm just i don't have the book but i'm really curious to know what is behind this well dg's notebook was like um my that was what i did during the pandemic i wrote a book so i i taught and i wrote a book that's what i that, that kept me very very busy sure. and so the concept for the book was something that i had kind of in my thinking for a long long time and i've been talking to rob wallace about it you know, over at Hudson, you know, I want to do a book that's kind of similar to the articles that I used to write for Modern Drummer magazine. Mm -hmm. But each one is like a standalone lesson. And so I had these notebooks that I've been keeping for years, practice notebooks. And they're like, I write down musical ideas, things that I'm practicing. I'll write it all out in as much detail as I can. And what what's happened is I kind of have this database of all these ideas and things. And so I would I put a date on it. So I go in a practice session, I come up with some idea that I think is really cool and I'll write it out and I had some data on it and I'll just do that for all my practice sessions. I do it all the time, but then some days I'll go back and I'll look at previous days, even previous years and I say, well, that's kind of a cool idea. And so I'll develop it further and take it steps further. And so it's kind of, I did it initially years and years ago. I was very, very young. And I thought, what would it look like if I wrote out this stuff that I was trying to play? And I just wrote it out so that I could, I did it for myself so I could see what it was that I was doing. And it was a really, really cool thing that happened because the, then when I visualized, I could visualize ideas that I was playing and it looked like the written music. I can close my eyes and I can see the written music. Uh, and it looks just like what I play. And I'm thinking, man, this is really, really great. So I'd have this mental representation of all the stuff that I'm playing. And it came from developing this idea of having a practice notebook. And so I just started using that, uh, you know, in my teaching. And one of the things that I do with with my students is if I find that they're too locked into all their books, I'll say, let's put the books away. And I want you to start a practice notebook and I want you to compose 10 ideas. Uh, could be anything, any style, anything that you want to say that play, write it out in as much detail as you understand. And then in our next session, I want you to teach those things to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, you know, kind of opens things up for a lot of people. Not everybody likes doing that, you know. Some people 
I, I've had some guys, man, they just love it, you know, and have really embraced the concept and their playing has really opened up. Uh, it, it, it's amazing what that will do, you know, yeah. but that was kind of, that's the idea of the notebook, you know? So there's a, a package of loops that goes along with it. That just came out. DG's loops. Saw that. Um, there's some kind of weird contest that, you know, people playing with the loops that you could submit to Hudson music. And then they had there's the, the whole contest going on now. That's pretty cool. You can still submit your stuff to Hudson, you know, to play along with the loops and video yourself and then submit it. And, you know, there'll be, there's a little contest that's going to happen and prizes and all that stuff. It's kind of cool. You know, I'm excited to check out the book more. Uh, again, I've got a couple of your books and, and future sounds has always been a regular book that I've, I revisit often. And, um, just with the, technology being what it is and having this companion you know downloadable tracks for people to play along with that's such a big thing and again we talk about technology and its pros and cons but how do we lean into all the pros and all these things that uh, that we can do to simulate a performance because isn't that what we want to be at the end of the day? A, a great performer, somebody that can play well on the gig, not be a good practicer. Not well, sound. I mean, I think, you know, that you have to be in bands. You can't be playing along with tracks at home all the time. Yeah. You got to be in bands. That's how you learn how to, you know, how to, how to interact with, with other musicians, you know, the, in, a, in those live situations. You know, I've been in a lot of bands, you know, over the years. And that's where I learned to play that's where you learn what's practical and what isn't you know what works and what doesn't you know when you're playing with a track yeah. it's you and a track and the and track ain't moving it's not moving and it's like you know the thing about music is that it's just like a conversation it, what's the key element in conversation it's listening so if you're a good listener you'll always have something to say people that are talking all the time they're not listening Mm. And it's the same thing with with music. You want to be a really great musician, you have to learn how to listen. I did a clinic one time with with uh, Randy Brecker and a bunch of guys, uh, Yamaha guys, and we did a clinic for these uh, high school kids in Santa Barbara, California. And it was a really fun day. You know, people play with us and, you know, we had a little ensemble and that. It was really, really fun. Uh, and so at the end of the, the, the day, the kids, you know, they're asking questions and Randy was talking. So they, the, the question that he was asked by, by one of the students was, if there's one thing that you want us to take away from today, what would that, would that be? And Randy was very thoughtfully kind of quiet for a second. And he says, listen, listening. And he explained the whole concept of listening and how important that is and what, you know, that's a key component in conversation and music is a conversation. Yeah. Right. You don't get that when you're playing with a track. It's one thing. Yeah. You get all that when you're in a band with people and you're navigating personalities and everyone's musical personalities and all of that. It shapes what you are. You know? 
And obviously the, the track can be a stepping stone in expressing ideas and learning how to play in time with different things, especially with, with certain styles of music that is, you know, maybe a loop based or you're playing to a click or a grid or something like that. But the, it's just one piece of the puzzle. And it you you can't it can't be overshadowed by the importance of interacting and listening like you're talking. Well, I'm I'm old school because I I think that being in a band is where you learn how to play music. Yeah, where you really really learn how to play music. Yeah, and you know that's that's not the way things are done today. You know, you have people that are stars of YouTube, and they're not in any bands. Yeah, but they're influencing. You know, influencers. Yeah, for sure, for sure, and that that is not in the way that I think about things. I have a very old school way to do it. You know, I think that, you know, like one of the reasons that I think tower still is doing stuff and we still have great shows is because when you come to see us play, you see a team of people who know how to work together and play together and uh, get along really well. And it's reflected in the music. And that transcends generations and styles yes, sir. and everything. Yes, sir. We got, you know, the old school people coming and they're bringing their kids, they're bringing their grandkids and they're their friends and, and all this stuff. You know, we, we have all er, uh, age groups, you know, at our shows, you know, it's cool. I love it. I love it. I've been listening to a lot of Tower Power the last month and uh I, I love the live record and uh, from 99 and, and man it's just so so fun so great so inspiring man and talking to you has been inspiring david thank you again for doing this pleasure to be here with you again thanks for damon hope for connecting us and all that good stuff and man i'll be in touch and uh hope to see you in person either uh as a in a, at a performance or just in person in general. Sounds good, bro. Thanks for having me, man. Have a Thanks. good one over there. You too. Have All right, brother. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it, my conversation with David Garibaldi. Again, big shout out to Damon Hope for making that connection. Make sure you check out DG's Notebook. And if you go on Hudson Music, I think, .com, you can actually download some of the book and get a feel for what he's got available. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with New York jazz drummer Allison Miller. Not only has she worked in the world of jazz, but her credits also include working with Brandy Carlisle and Ani DeFranco. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Be well and hope to see you around. Bye-bye.